So let's pretend that people's jobs actually matter. And having people who are good at their jobs also matters. Like, I don't know, national security. And so to tell me that women were not promoted because people were afraid what that former guy who used to live in the White House would say or feel or do, are you? You think that that's the, that's the least of things it's, that people it is. did or did it's, not it's do. So, but it's like, there are so many people who have to be like, yeah, we're just going to do nothing. So many people. But that, I mean, that's the story of the Trump administration. So many people. But hold on. Um, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Parents cold and open. Professors. <laughs> nah, that's, the, that's definitely cold open. Welcome to another episode of Parents and Professors uh, with your triple C's. Kylie's co-parents and collaborators. Do we say that? Dr. Michael Stephen Williams and Dr. Marjorie Dorme Williams. Um, Marjorie is reacting to the New York Times headline. It says promotions for female generals were delayed over fears of Trump's reaction. <laughs> Her face is perfect. So you all need to go to the New York Times and read this article. Um, it's by Eric Schmidt and Helene Cooper. And I guess the the thing about it is just it's it's all the things that we know, right? It's women are promoted the same rates as men. We don't get paid as much as men. Um, people get passed over for promotions. So now you're telling me that these people were actually supposed to already be promoted. They've made it through all those hurdles, and they couldn't. They've persisted in the military. My mother's. That's a big deal. A retiree from the military. They 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 persisted in the military long enough to rise to the rank of general, and that was delayed for fear of what trump would think that's so wild and so now the biden administration is charging you know getting them through to this line i can't just this and yes good for biden right he's he's just his presidency is going to be cleaning things up like that is that's just what he's going to do he's a country janitor <laughs> i'm sorry what he's a country janitor is, like that's what it is is like, this a texas thing well think of the the core of i mean he even started running on it at the end it was it, it was, was like yo i'm gonna clean up this mess that trump made i got y'all and i got four years in me <laughs> i will dedicate those four years to cleaning up exactly like um it's just the fact that right and so they obviously had to interview people and look at documents and so people were afraid that if anyone who was up for promotion was not a white male that it'd be an issue. And it would be an issue, which is also the problem. <sighs> I'm tired, y'all. Like, I just, there's so many things that we do that are contrary to what we know. Generally accepted understanding of society, economics, social issues, political issues, education, healthcare. You, we, it's not. It's actually not rocket science. I don't know how hard rocket science is. I'm assuming it's difficult because you have to put people in space and like not kill them. There's rocket science and there's statistics. <laughs> Quasi experimental designs. <laughs> rocket science got nothing on trying to figure out this regression discontinuity. Large international data sets. Unclean. <laughs> it's just, it. it's so, it's really frustrating, and I think this is a good connection to thinking about what we do in education when we look at 
statistics on college presidents, for example. Most college presidents are over the age of 60. They're white, they're male. They've been president somewhere else before, which I think is interesting because it's like, well, were you good at your job or bad at your job? Why did, what, what happened there? Right, like presidents who bounce around. Oh, that I mean, uh, you like, mean old white men that bounce around? Right. NBA coaches, NFL coaches, soccer coaches, like people just get recycled. Like once you get to that level. We don't have to do that. There's so, literally so many people. But we do it in almost every field of endeavor. I don't think that's as annoying as it is and as poor practice as it is. I don't think it's something that higher education has a monopoly on. No, but I do think that, again, we have whole, a whole field dedicating to studying this. Actually, several fields, right? If we think about leadership, if we think about higher education, if we think about people who, stander, who study- Not everybody that studies higher education studies leadership. No, but there, there's understanding of what makes good institutions, the things that we need for our students, the things that we need to support faculty and staff. But we still have leaders of these institutions who don't understand higher education. But that's it's this problem, right? That we're promoting people because they fit a particular mold. Because they can make money and they can raise money. I think that's- Or the that they appease people. I mean, especially in this environment where- But appease what kind of people? Those who hold the- So I will say specifically for public institutions, those who hold the purse strings, right? And so um, I think that looking at the story about the generals, it, it happens at many institutions, right? That someone isn't promoted or people get passed over or this idea that you have to leave to advance is honestly ridiculous. Move out to move up? Why? Why not keep the talent that you have? Why not invest in the people that you already have working for you, especially if you know they do good work. Wait, you believe in retention and persistence for faculty and staff? Call me crazy. Woo. I, this, listen, stick with me, y'all. This is a really, this is a novel idea, and I'm so glad that I get to share with all of you how I think these things should work. Bless them. <laughs> First of all, I believe that anyone who is in a senior leadership position in higher education needs to, at minimum, hold a certificate from a higher education program. You need to understand student development. You need to understand faculty and staff development. You need to be able to speak to issues of retention. And that doesn't mean, oh, look, our number is 70%. We're doing a good job. Social justice, racism, diversity, equity, inclusive excellence as well. All of those words have actual meanings and actions that go behind them. They're not simply things that pop up and happen by themselves. Retention doesn't just happen. There are people and programs and policies and practices in place that get our students Ooh, to where they need to be. <laughs> just, it's really, it's so frustrating. So for example, if you have a program that's meant to support Students of color at a predominantly white institution or historically white institution, if you prefer. We call them at promise students. Oh, I like that. Mm, Harper, 2010. Oh, look at Harper. <laughs> Shout out to Sean Harper. Go Penn. <laughs> you Penn, not Penn State. Oh, greasy. Remember when everyone had those? Uh, no, we got people. So, there's a difference. We got people from the squad at, at both institutions. Yeah, so Absolutely, that. and it's all love. Um. Right, but we, we have these programs 
that are supported by research, decades worth of research. You have the students themselves telling you, this really works. This was beneficial to me. I learned things that I didn't know. I gained access to people that I didn't have access to. I, I am now- I developed my major in career self-efficacy. Right? So I am now more likely to be retained, ding, 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 and persist, ding, 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 based on the support that's provided by this program. Ding, ding, ding. So when we have these people in leadership positions who can only look at spreadsheets and see numbers, it's really problematic because then the people who are actually doing the work don't have the support they need because these folks don't understand their job. They don't understand what we do. How do the people who need the support tell their story better? Ooh, hashtag Hamilton. Um, I think there's two really significant things that we need to do better. Who's we? Higher education and thinking specifically, and this, this is both academic, co-curricular, wherever your space is on campus. One, we need to do a better job of being explicit and articulating what it is that we do. That means mission statements and web pages and social media posts that say things like we're training, you know, students to be global leaders in the 21st century in a technological economy. And to be lifelong learners, like that's that has no that's nothing. You're doing nothing. You're telling me nothing. And if I'm a parent, I'm like, what? What do you actually do? And this might be for like the counseling center, right? Like, why are we why are we doing this? You naming names? Not here. I'm just saying <laughs> in general. <laughs> right? But I mean, so I'm I want y'all to like take a minute, pause the episode, go Google any college or university, and then look at some of these mission statements of the actual institutions. They all say the same thing. We want to be a leader in, in research and faculty productivity, and we want to contribute to the economy and people of our state. Diversity, equity, <laughs> inclusion. Sprinkling diversity and equity. We value the diversity and thought and values that our students and faculty and staff bring to our institution. Go university. Like, it's all the same nonsense. So first of all, what we need to do is actually say what it is that we do. Not what we feel like doing, not what sounds good. Say what you actually do. If you're a tutoring program, I don't wanna see something about you providing, I don't know, donuts on a Saturday as like your mission statement. Like it's not to give out donuts, it's the tutor students. I don't even know where that, you reached so far outside the bounds. I needed it to be ridiculous example. to make the point. Yes, distracting from the point. Or it's like, hey, here's an office that's supposed to provide donuts donuts <laughs> and they're over here talking about online classes in china what i just came here for donuts like what are we doing mm. say what you do and be explicit about what it is so that both people internal to your institution and externally know who you are what you do how you do it and why second and I'm teaching a data and decision making for educational leaders course for our undergraduate Shameless program. Plug. <laughs> our bachelor's in uh, <laughs> educational studies. It's going really well. Shout out to my class. Yeah, I want to know how many courses for the certificate program you proposed earlier, too. Oh, we're going to come back to that. But the other piece of this is that people consistently, and again, this is across all institutional spaces, want to say things like, well, you can't measure and evaluate what we do. 
That's nonsense. If you have clearly articulated goals, which means they're measurable and not just warm, fuzzy feelings and lifelong learners. Would you call those goals smart? Smart goals. I've heard that floating around from time to time. On occasion. On occasion. If you have clearly articulated goals, then that means you can measure and evaluate what you do and speak to the fact that, yes, this is a program designed to support student retention. Here's all of the data that we've collected on our program, which includes, yes, things like retention rates and graduation rates and GPA, but it also includes testimony and information directly from students. It includes making clear connections between having this particular program to support the transition of students into the university is backed by research. And we know that having this particular program is the type of actions and behaviors that we need to be doing to retain our students. And so I just feel so frustrated every time I see an inside higher ed story or a story in the Chronicle or something in a local paper where the programs that are actually doing the work to retain and support the students who need the most help are the ones that are always under attack. It's ridiculous. And it's why we can't get ahead. But how do, and, is it the, I mean, I feel like part of it is that the attacks are overt and covert. And so talk a little bit about. Well, say what, more, what you, give examples of what you mean by that. So I feel like there are a lot of urban legends that develop about the strength and viability of programs when they were destined to fail because they were stripped of resources. You know, so if you have a retention center and you cut funding so they can't pay student workers and they can't pay mentors and they can't pay the back office workers that make the experience worthwhile. You could kill it outright by saying, oh, I'm not going to fund this anymore. Or you could kill it a lot more quietly by just cutting away the budget. Right. Work magic with nothing. Hey, we want to see this program increase retention by 50%. We're also going to cut your budget by 50%. But then they let people, Good luck. Like but they, they let it look like it was mismanagement or that it was a poor investment for the institution. Even I mean, though it's really them failing to honor their commitment. But I think it's also that these are institutions who sprinkle equity and diversity across, you know, newsletters and it's websites. Just, it's a seasoning. It's, <laughs> not the, it's not the dish. It's just, it's just, it's like parsley when you put yeah, it at, exactly. the, at the end of like when you're done cooking. You can't taste this. Garnish. Yeah. It's garnish. It's garnish because they don't care about the success of these students. But again, it's because we promote people into leadership, not all, right? Not all leaders, but too many who not only don't understand the context that they actually work in, they don't care. There are institutions that could lose every student of color, every first generation student, every veteran, every disabled student, every insert marginalized identity here. And well, they'd be like, how far you're going to go. I was like, bars. I started counting. <laughs> <laughs> students who are in the religious minority. I mean, like Catholics. the list goes on. There are institutions that could lose all of those students and there are people who would cheer and say, good. Now we don't have to think about it. So say you wanted to yes. develop a strong research question about all these issues you've been talking about. Was that your transition sentence? 
you just gonna call it out it's all behind the active no I, I think that's right and, and that's a great point right so how do we how do we think about how do we impact it so you talked about yes making sure that research informs policy and praxis right so what evidences do you need and how do you go about getting them to move the needle on the problem that you've outlined well i think there there's lots of different ways to approach any of these issues and i think that no single research agenda can accomplish that so that's sort of like point number one whatever it is that you decide to look at should be focused and targeted so that you can create recommendations that are actionable versus sort of things that are way too large to actually manage. So you definitely want your research questions to be focused on a particular population, on a really specific issue. Um, it doesn't have to be, right, you're solving every problem in yeah, a college so, or university setting. So give me an example. So let's say we want to, we want to think about an issue. So we want to think about having an informed higher education leadership at a larger percentage of institutions than we do right now. We want them to be culturally competent. We want them to actually care about the people that work at the institution. Some constructs we may or may not be interested in affecting include belonging, and maybe we need to develop an assessment plan for the evaluation of- I see what you did there. Yeah, so like, how do you, how do you turn these broad questions because there are so many things that you would want to affect. There's so many things that you would want to push back on. How do you turn that into something researchable? How do you break it down into like strong research questions? Because that's one of the questions we get the most. So EDD, PhD, masters, like anybody who's interested in research. How do you do it? Yeah, like how do you like how do you come up with a question that you can that's researchable? Um, so I think the right, so so the first point again is what is your topic problem or issue and I think looking at it from a um, issue or problem standpoint is helpful because topics could still be really broad um, and so our our right our, our problem is leaders senior leaders especially in higher education who lack knowledge and wisdom <laughs> I was gonna say um, or the background of the context with, that they're working in, right? So if you look at the degrees of college presidents, um, even we'll just stick to public institutions across the country. The number who have higher education degrees is like 1%. It's really small. It might be 6%. Um, but that's still a really, really, really small number of people who actually have a degree in the thing that they're working in. So we know the issue is that part of or part of the issue is a lack of knowledge and training or preparation, right? So people move up the ladder without because they've been there a long time or because they've published you know, on the faculty side. Well, you've published a lot and got lots of grants. Somehow that translates into you should be in charge of other people. I, I don't know how or why. I, I don't know who started that money <laughs> and people are not the <laughs> same. Not the same things at all. And I think if you're, you know, oh, I, like I'm thinking of um, who's the president at at your your doctoral degree granting institution again? Currently? Yeah. I don't know. I think Drake might have moved on. Did he? I'm not sure. He was. I don't know if he's still president. Oh, that was short. 
No, we've been going for some time. Oh wait, is this it's definitely is this my age showing? <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like it just got there, yeah, like seven years Twenty fourteen, like so. My bad. Yeah, Casper's PhD game for <laughs> seven years strong at this point. You know what I mean? Please. Um, Are you older? Mm-mm, nope. Yeah, you're my PhD profile. <laughs> Niggas was taking advantage of that too. They're oh yeah. Like, yeah, like. <laughs> Doctor, doctor, and Mister. Is that Zach? Yeah, this is Buster. Um, we're getting it off. But I, right, I remember thinking like, oh, that's interesting. He's got right a STEM background, um, and so how do we think about how people move through the ladder and like what preparation and training they get? And I think leaders who are good leaders do that on their own, right? They read books, they go to conferences, they participate in. Training costs lots of different organizations. There's an investment there, but lots of people don't and believe that, well, I got chosen for this position because I'm me or some version of that. So I think our problem is that there's a lack of training and preparation for senior leadership in higher education. Well, how do we figure that out? How do we address it? We could look at that qualitatively. So actually talking to people, what training did you have to prepare you for this role? No one. <laughs> What understanding do you have of higher education? I went to school. What theories do you use? Aston, <laughs> I-E-O. Tinto, 1975. <laughs> <laughs> Splash. <laughs> Steph Curry with the shot, boy. Listen, I, also, I want to say, I met Aston at, uh, what's it, ARA or Ashton? I don't know. You was on some groupie shit. <laughs> it was so so like absolutely like love and he talked to me about my dissertation and I was like here's what I'm thinking and we spent like a whole 30 minutes yeah, just he was like excite like, me <laughs> but it was phenomenal he's so like, like oh you were going to anyway <laughs> it was just very cool to meet this person that you know you read about and is the foundation for nah, so much I other research you. I felt like a groupie when I met Sylvia her title <laughs> yes I and still you're like she has no idea who I am to this day, <laughs> but I group you up every time. You're like, because it's, it's every time is like the first time. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. That's why they're senior scholars. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But there are all of these things that folks just aren't equipped with. So we could look at that issue qualitatively, right? What preparation do college um presidents have before entering their administrative role um we could think about it quantitatively we could do a an ana a longitudinal analysis actually so now i'm like really interested we need to write these down you guys don't see my idea so we could also do what i think would be really interesting is a longitudinal analysis of college presidents but beyond just sort of some of those basic demographics what i'd really be interested in is um right thinking about degrees so what degrees do they hold thinking about their previous roles, but also looking at things like how many conferences on you know, leadership development have you attended? How many books in a year do you read about leadership and management? Who, you know, what are your sources for um, supporting your decision making, right? Like getting that information. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how many zeros are probably gonna be on that list. Like I make decisions based on my gut. <laughs> I am Truth a president is. and therefore everything I do is correct. Hmm. So, right, so that, that's just one example of how to think about and flesh out and develop your research questions. So you want to think about 
right? Is it something you can answer? Where can you get the information for it? Um, is it specific enough? And I think in this example, yes. Preparation of college presidents is a, is a specific topic. Um, you want it to be relevant to what you do, right? So I'm not I'm not writing about rocket science. That's, that's not my field of interest. I don't know anything about it. It's mad bread and STEM, <laughs> fam. You, you know might what? be writing about rocket you science. You know what we could do? We could write about how many rocket scientists become college presidents. Zero. That'd be interesting. They're too busy. <laughs> you can't play politics. Making rocket scientists money. Um, so so there, there's a process to thinking about your research question, and it, it might change and evolve as you delve into the work. So I think that that's another important piece of the top, the conversation. You're, it's allowed to evolve. You have to make space for it to evolve. You have to be careful and thoughtful and open to the evolution. If your research question doesn't shift or your perspective on it doesn't shift a little bit as you gather more information and as you build a stronger foundation to really think about it critically, then you're not doing it right. And so don't feel like you got to come out of the box with a fully formed question. You know, be willing to share, be vulnerable enough to work the idea out with people before you have it fully formed. And base it in your interests, like your interests and your passions. So you mentioned, um, right, our students, or, you know, how students think about getting to that space of developing research questions. How did you develop your research question? Let's we'll even start with your dissertation. Because that, that was your student mode, right? How did yeah. you get to your question? Um, honestly, I was, doing, I was doing so much. I, I'm a fox. And so I remember. What I does that this. mean? So I, I met Thomas Cook. And for my quant nerds, you know, shout to you. So she <laughs> dropped Aston earlier. Like, <laughs> yeah, Thomas Cook was the head of a quasi-experimental design workshop that I participated in as a early career faculty member. And I was geeking out. I was like, Cook, like from Cook and Shaddish? Like, Cook. And that's so cool. Yeah. And, and he's like, well, indeed. <laughs> I remember he had an accent that was just so different than that's what I expected. Awesome me. Yeah. Um, and so we went to lunch. And he was like, you know, what do you do? What are you interested in? Like, talk to me about like how this workshop could benefit you. And I just laid out everything that I was interested in all at once. <laughs> and I was like, I'm interested in relationships and belonging and socialization and mentoring. And I feel like people don't think enough about race and diversity and how like individual and collective differences really impact your ability to create environments that support all those things and how do you meet in the middle like how do you make broadly supportive environments and then create kind of microsystems so that everybody feels good within the larger support so like there has to be a way to make everybody feel good in the big community and in all the little sub communities that people occupy um and so I was just, he just let me ramble. <laughs> um, and he's like, so if you had to answer one question, <laughs> what? 
what would it be? You know, like of all everything you just talked about, like if you had to answer one question, like what would it be? And I was like, can that question still be broad? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, what works? Like that, like that's my question. Like what works? And so every time I get my hands on a data set, anytime I get my hands on or like create a data set, those are the questions I'm asking myself. Like I'm just asking myself, like what works? Because I'm not interested in short-term change. Because like the way that we think about equity, diversity, inclusion, all that stuff is so reactionary. And it's about band-aids. We're, we're constantly replacing the band-aid on bullet wounds when it comes to these topics and these issues. And so like, I wanna know what works and like what works not just in the short term, but in the long term. Because I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be entertainment. Like, I want people to do stuff like yeah. basically, yeah, like, I, and- This is not just for fun. You could bring me in and I could make you feel good and ask you great questions and provoke thought. But if I leave and y'all just go back to exactly what you were doing before I came through, that's a waste of everybody's, that's a waste of everybody's time. time. And like the honorarium ain't even worth it. <laughs> so, so what is like that? keep your bread. So what is that? Um, how does this connect to the foxiness? Um, because I'm just interested in a lot of things. And so what I've learned to, one of the ways that I've learned to narrow my research questions, because I read across disciplines, I read like, there's so many ideas that I have about like leadership and innovation and how, people move that I want to incorporate into higher education, but I feel like I get pushback every time I try to publish something like that. Um, and, you know, I'll be perseverant and figure it out. But yeah, it, it's I'm, it's okay to start big. Like it's okay to start. So like a fox is somebody who is interested in like moves from idea to idea or is like constantly jumping topics. Whereas a hedgehog is somebody who has like one idea and they just go really really deep into that idea all of the evaluation <laughs> yeah and so like for me yeah i feel like it's the difference between like my scholarly agenda and yours that yours is like but what does this have to do with assessment and it's it's always been that way even before i knew what assessment was yeah and so like yeah because you're oh that's a whole other character study like wait you will follow my rules right <laughs> like you're like the queen of every little fiefdom you create so I feel like there's a difference between so the fox and the hedgehog, right? Like you're you're a hedgehog. You're an assessment hedgehog. Like that's your like that's your space. And so you'll connect social justice a little bit and you'll connect, you know, um, but it's really everything is connected to assessment. For me, it's mentoring and belonging and self-efficacy and campus climate and critical race theory and intersectionality and black feminist thought and black historical studies it, like I'm all those threads always make sense to me and I feel like they're always at work but it's easy for me to move around topics because I see value in talking about it in every space so like when I collaborate with you it can be about assessment when I collaborate with Joey it's about STEM shout out to Jake Hitch yeah like when I collaborate with Leroy it's about the space that he's carving out which is like the the intersection of STEM and athletics. And Shout out to Leroy. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> like, okay, I'm interested in supporting minoritized students connected to my topics, no matter where they show up. And because a lack of understanding of like critical theory and diversity 
and equity and like real application of that exists nowhere. <laughs> like I'm interested in being everywhere, right? Like there's there's so few places where like consistently, and even as a, like a I'm a editorial board member. Like I'm I do a lot of peer reviewing of scholarship. There are a lot of people who talk about like concepts and ideas and who purport to care about equity and diversity. Purport to care. But that I mean, but if you read their work, <laughs> it's like you don't know this and you don't believe this. You just, you like, this believe, is just it's what that you, you don't believe. Yeah, it's yeah. just like you think this is what you're supposed to say to get published. So you're just saying. Yeah, so like you're not engaging in this critically in any meaningful way. And like I never wanted to be that reviewer. And I still feel like I'm an appreciative reviewer. You're not reviewer number two, are you? I'm sometimes. <laughs> That's awful. Like I'm, I'm like I'm reviewer one or three sometimes. I where it's like the reviewer I feel like reviewer number three is usually the one that's holding me down. Like if there's three peer reviews and oh, is like, it? Yeah, if like reviewer number two somehow stays reviewer number two. They do, and I've had. I will say that for the most part, my reviewer number two is a reviewer number two but they're still helpful. Like they were helpful. It's not just. No, I don't mind the heat. Right. Cause I like, I actually like, like if it actually part. makes my work better. I like that part. Yeah. No, I like, I get annoyed because, because of what I'm forced to review. I know that I seldom put out an unpublishable study. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I, like there are people who submit things that somehow get past the first wave and I feel like I want to faint and die, and that my Grammarly would explode. <coughs> I'm sorry, my bad. All that you hilarious. It is what it go is. Go back to where you started with yeah. publishing. I, Your work is publishable. We're gonna cut my coughing. Your I work know is that publishable. I've seen publishable work in me. If for no other reason, I'm a reviewer. Right, and I know it gets submitted. Yeah. And I know it gets past the first level of defense and gets into my email. Do you email, know what's And I start getting reminder emails like, hey, Dr. Williams, you clearly don't have shit else to do. So why don't you review this weak ass scholarship? Mm -mm. That <laughs> it's so I'm not an editor, but also a reviewer. When you get something and then you see what other people said and you're like, I don't think we read the same paper. Mm. Because this isn't good. And here I've, are all of the reasons. But I've also had manuscripts where somebody was kind enough to lay the complete smackdown on it, but still give me with major revisions. That's nice. And what they got back was a completely new manuscript about yes. the same topic with point by point addressing Address. of yep. each of their helpful ass comments. It was like, oh, we can make this better. Yeah, and like, and so the review process, especially if you have responsible peer reviewers, is amazing. Because it does make your work stronger. You're like, oh, this is a better paper. But that's also what makes me wait to the last second to return my reviews to other people because I want to read it and I want to mm. sit with it to and make I want to sure like actually yeah. engage with it. Like, I don't even like, there are times where I feel time pressed where I don't get to add in citations that would be helpful in my review to folks yeah and i because i love those i love getting those i love when somebody's like hey you know what would help you clarify your thinking around this read this 
I love that. And I've, I've never had a reviewer give me that type of suggestion and it not be abundantly helpful. And so I hate feeling time pressured where I can't engage long enough just because I want to get it back and I, don't, I want to keep the process moving for whoever the authors are. That I can't say, you should really read this or like this would be helpful or I see where you're trying to go. I don't think you're quite there yet. Like just some clear feedback that isn't nitpicky, but it's substantive in a way that whatever they choose to do, it's going to be better. Even if they choose to pull it, even though, right. yeah, like even if they choose to be like, because they'll still have that feedback. Yeah, I want them to be like, yo, because the, the best reviews for me are where I'm like, yo, my first response is like, fuck out. And then I'm like, <laughs> then I'm like, oh wait, like, damn, they got a point. Oh, that could be. This all right, is I'm not gonna read, a total. Yeah, place. like I'm gonna read all. I'm gonna read all these suggested readings, and uh, I'll be back. You know what I mean? It'll be both ours. We'll just keep it in my house. And uh... so, in thinking about right this broader topic of of research questions and how do you make a research question, or how do you create right good research questions? Um, how do you see the evolution of research questions? Because I think that's another part where. Students might come in, they're like, oh, well, I don't know what my topic is, and they feel like anxiety about that. Or, oh, well, I thought I wanted to do this, but now I want to change my mind, but I don't want to change my mind. I think you just got to create. I mean, really, we need to create better cultures of help seeking. As professors, I think that's part of our job. I think it's part of what we try to do through our research team. Mm hmm. I think we need to do a better job of like kind of spreading that spirit throughout our department, like both to the benefit of our department, but also to like us. Because think about how different our faculty is. Like as people? As people, but as researchers. And so you come and you present your work to them and you're like, yo, writing about summer bridge programs right now. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're thinking. Here's mm. what we're learning. What do y'all think? And then they start asking questions about the methodology and they start asking questions about the implications and they start asking questions about the theoretical frameworks. Like think of how much doper the work is. And so it's great to create these kind of small spaces where we're doing that. But like with the research team. Yeah, I think it needs to grow. I think it needs to expand. It needs to be okay, we started with the research team now this is department. We got the department now it's the college that's not going to get me tenure michael if it's our research if we're taking the lead and we're just doing all <laughs> our research maybe we're, i mean that's not me <laughs> because the benefit too of letting people know what you do is that yeah. they can join you in it and support you and they can think about you when opportunities to do good work present themselves this is true um like i know what broadly speaking our faculty do, but I think it's always helpful to have those times where we're actually sharing our work. Um, and not just as like citations at the end of our agenda meetings, which is cool. We have a really productive faculty. They're amazing and awesome. Um, but I, I do agree that there are better ways to model this so that our students understand what this looks like, right? Like it's not a secret. Um, you know, I, like I've shared my schedule. Like this is a screen share of my Outlook calendar. So when I tell you, like, it's gonna take a minute for me to get your grades in. <laughs> this is why. 
or no, I can't meet with you at noon because I'm already double booked. <laughs> like, uh, I, fam, I would be, I would put myself up for most any highly rated professor contest if I graded faster. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be getting dinged on that joint. And it, it'd be true. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, them grades, though. Took you a little minute, my nigga. Like you offered me a number of reassuring messages that I had nothing to worry about. That's not However, the same as a great. Yeah, like I mean, I'm like, my dude, like this is my life. Yeah, like me spent two hours giving you the in-depth feedback that this requires, or two hours on this R and R. Yeah, it's like gotta keep the lights on, homie. <laughs> and that's right. We'll come, this is a whole other topic that we're gonna have to save for another time. Um, but yeah, I think we, we still have a lot to, there's a lot of work to do in higher education. Um, there's a lot of work to do, I think nationally around how we can do a better job of not letting these isms, biases, prejudice, discrimination, get in the way of the people who should actually be in these roles and positions doing that work because we all benefit right when we have good leaders people are happy they're more productive they want to work they flourish they flourish they thrive oh they thrive rather than just survive i want to that was us high-fiving <laughs> but those things matter right like those things definitely <laughs> They definitely matter. So, so this is my this is my plea. If you're thinking about going into education, you absolutely should um, come holler at us. We need more people who are going to commit to doing the work, right? And and being in leadership and and being people who are tasked with making decisions and advancing others is a really important role. What we need to do better is recognizing the people who are doing the work that fits the roles they're being promoted to and stop keeping people who should be promoted from getting those promotions, right? Um, particularly because they might not fit an outdated model or idea of what a leader looks like. I'm gonna end there. I think that's a wise decision. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week, y'all. Um, we had a really good time talking about, uh, I think, this topic, and we will see you next week. Peace. Do we have a closing? Not yet. We'll work that shit out. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>